What is the state of the independent restaurant? Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I speak with Michelle Corsmo, the relatively new CEO of the National Restaurant Association. Michelle took over as president and CEO of the association in May. She has had a career in public policy at both the state and federal levels, most recently as CEO of the Wine and Spirits Wholesalers of America. We talk about Michelle's background and how she came to her current position. She talks in particular about the Restaurant Revitalization Fund and why the Small Business Administration is sitting on $180 million in leftover money. She talks also about the state of the industry and she talks about the particular challenges of independent restaurants. She also talks about how to balance the needs of those small restaurants with those of large chains, a particular issue of the association. We also talk about inflation and even get into so-called shrinkflation. It's just a couple of Midwesterners talking restaurants on this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, so please have a listen. All right, I am here with Michelle Corsmo. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Great to be here. Super. So how's uh, how's it been going? You've been at the association for a couple of months. How, how are things going? It's absolutely fantastic. Exceeded my expectations. And that's coming from a perspective that I was really excited to get here. You know, everybody knows that the restaurant industry is full of really warm, wonderful people that are always asking what they can do for you and how can they help and coming in since the beginning of May has really proven that and actually exceeded that expectation tenfold in what this industry does for its community. Mm-hmm. Tell us a, a little bit about yourself and, and your background. Mm-hmm. I see you're from North Dakota, my neck of the woods, roughly. I am. I am. I am. Uh, we're tough, right? From the upper Midwest. Uh, where are you from, Jonathan? Minnesota. I'm from Minnesota. That's where I'm at. It's all right. So we're close. It's a little colder in North Dakota. So I might say we're a little tougher from North Dakota. <laughs> so I grew up on a farm in North Dakota and was always kind of interested in politics, but never really thought that there could be a career in politics. But when I was in college at North Dakota State University, I went and worked as a lobbyist for the student government in the state capital, Bismarck, North Dakota. And you know, if I didn't already have the bug then, I definitely caught the bug and really enjoyed being able to influence the way laws and regulations are set. And so it was great. I had my own business in North Dakota where I did advocacy work. I worked on some campaigns, set up grassroots organizations, got people really involved in exciting things like telecommunications reform. So if you can do grassroots on telecommunications reform, you can probably do grassroots on almost anything. Uh, And then that led me to Washington, D.C. I came to D.C. in early 2000s. I was the deputy chief of staff for the secretary of labor which was great. I always said it was like working for the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Um, And from there, I just started to work in what I refer to as the company town. I think DC is the company town and had a chance to go to a trade association and thought this will be a good chance for me to learn a different division of the company uh, and loved it. I really loved the intersection that the association brings with the people that are living under the laws and regulations that policymakers are enacting and helping the policymakers understand how it actually impacts people's day-to-day activities, brings brings it to life instead of it being kind of an academic, theoretical, marbled, hauled conversation about what you're going to do. Uh, it's nice to be able to connect people with policymakers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as we as we 
we talk this week, the the association just basically demanded that the SBA release $180 million from the restaurant relief fund. Can you talk a little bit about that? And that seems like a lot of money that they're kind of holding back. What's going on? Well, that's certainly how we see it. You know, one of the things that we're really concerned about is, you know, this report just came out that SBA has all of these relief funds that they haven't been processing. And, you know, for the 177,000 restaurants that didn't receive the restaurant revitalization fund, you know, they're feeling it. If SBA still has $180 million of unspent RRF grants, uh, there's people that need that. You know, one thing that's hard when people look at the economy right now, you know, they're worried about inflation, but when they talk about how restaurants are doing post-pandemic, everybody's got to, well, you know, pandemic's kind of over, things are better, and they don't really see what's going on behind the scenes, right? In the same way that they don't really see what's going on back of the house, uh, they don't really see what's going on in the in the books of that particular restaurant. So if you're a restaurant that didn't receive RRF funds and you figured out how to stay open and keep your employees uh, engaged and bring them back and go through that transition of open and closing and off, you know, different hours and supply chain problems and manage to piece it all together financially, you're probably in a much different situation than the restaurant across the street that was able to have that RRF funding that provided a bridge and gave them just a little bit more breathing room, right, to figure out how they're going to keep their business open and get back to that thriving thriving establishment that they want to build. So to have the SBA sitting on $180 million when you've got restaurants that you don't see how tough it is for them is significant. Mm-hmm. Why are they sitting on it? What's what's? Well, I don't really know uh, why they're sitting on it. What you know, the GAO did in their report, which I've skimmed and not really dug into, um, just the fact that it's there. And I think that what I would say from my time in working in the administration, assume positive intent, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a process problem. I think that they haven't had the discipline they've needed to go through the grant program to process it efficiently to get those dollars out the door because they don't potentially have that same sense of urgency that the people who are trying to make sure they're paying all of their vendors and their meat and payroll have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk a, um, a little bit about the the state of the industry from from your perspective, because it seems like it's it's in in kind of an odd state on balance. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see a lot of sales, you know, certainly on the chain side, which is what I cover most of the time personally. Mm-hmm. But you know, we have real high costs uh, at the moment. Inflation is is at forty year highs. And and a, a lot of certainly, especially independent restaurants are still not really don't quite have, you know, haven't had the benefit of some of the things that some of these larger companies have had. Right. Obviously, they didn't get a lot of them didn't get their needed relief. So what's the state of the industry at the moment? Uh, I think it's exactly what you're talking about. It's kind of this weird space. You know, we do surveys at the National Restaurant Association about operators, and we've been doing them since for 20 years, I think. And Right now, they're telling us that they are more pessimistic about the economy since they've been is since the 2008 recession. And this is the first time that this level of the people that we survey expect economic conditions to worsen in the next six months. Uh, we have over 40% of op- operators that say they expect economic conditions to worsen. 
And that's and that's kind of tough, right? If you think the next six months are going to get harder than they've been, considering that it's been pretty hard. So I think that the it's exactly what you said. We're in this kind of weird time where some of the numbers look good, right? Sales are coming back. People are feeling really good about that. But we've got to remember that those those sales numbers are also tied to that inflation that you've talked through. And everybody's looking at the top line inflation number, Jonathan. And I think it's important for us to think about what those input costs are for restaurants, right? So food, uh, labor, we all know that labor costs are up because it's just harder to attract and retain a workforce. And so that's going to drive your labor costs up a bit. Uh, and then the food costs are going up. Uh, wholesale food costs are up 13% over the last 12 months, which is you know, unbelievable when you think about it, and especially unbelievable when you think about the fact that restaurant menu prices are up a little bit more than 7% over that same time frame. So you don't have to be really good at math to do that math to understand that the restaurants are absorbing a lot of that hit. And, and you know, most people aren't realizing it. There's lots of questions um, that we're getting about, you know, what's going on with other ways that restaurants are charging and question, I get questions from the media about shrinkflation, I hate to talk about shrinkflation. I don't know why it bothers me so much to talk about shrinkflation, but I, I just hate the concept. I mean, yeah, people are making different decisions about what they're doing, but what they're thinking about is value. When I talk to our uh, restaurateurs about how they're managing the increased food costs, they, they all kind of come back to that question of value and price, right? So we've got to manage the price so that we keep those customers in the door, but we've got to make sure that people are feeling that there's value for the money that they're spending. Because if that food isn't tasty, if it's not hot, if the service isn't with a smile uh, and you're paying more money, people are going to say, eh, I don't know. And so maybe you're getting a, a six ounce cut instead of an eight ounce cut for that same price point. But if what you wanted was that particular cut of meat, that's probably pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Shrink that's, you know, that is, I does mean, it bug it, you too, or is it well, just bug it, me that I mean, phrase? No, I mean it does. It does bug me. The phrase bothers me. I don't yeah. like. I don't like the shrinkflation bother. Like, but at the same time, it's you have an inflationary environment, and and companies can right. do things. You can raise prices, or you can you know you can cut what people get out of it. And you know, I mean, we've seen time and again that like if you. I guess the, the the example I always go to is Subway's five dollar foot long. If you remember, uh -huh. yeah, and, of course, I ate I, lots of them yeah. in college. That you, was the you best. And everybody else, because it, yeah, it carried Subway through the eight oh eight oh nine recession. And, yeah, but like, and I remember when they started pricing it at six dollars. They went through a brief period when they started pricing a foot long sub at six dollars. And if you remember that, it was during that period that post-recessionary period where we also had some commodity inflation not you know paired with this ugly labor cost inflation at the right. same time but if you right. remember that but it was still it was causing you know sales were still weak coming out of that recession and then uh costs were high and it real in subway of course franchisees they don't you know their unit volumes are low and and they mm -hmm. really can't afford that kind of profit hit they right. literally i know a lot of subway franchisees they're small operators, most of them vast majority or vast majority right. really can't absorb those kind of profit challenges. And so Subway priced it at six dollars. People freaked out. Mm -hmm. Could not, could not handle. So what do you do if you're an operator? If you're sitting there an operator and you have a choice of like, hey, like we can we can cut what we're the amount we're serving and still give you the price that you want, 
or right. we can raise prices and you'll freak out in some form or fashion. I mean, people can't have it both ways at the time because right. you know, operators have to make money. So profit making enterprise. And I think that's why that shrinkflation phrase bothers me so much because if there is shrinkflation, right, to use that word, it's it's only in reaction to what consumers are looking for. So if I'm, you know, I'm dealing with a lot more gas expense in my week than I'm used to. So I've got a little less disposable income. I still want to go out to eat because I like to go out to eat in my house because we don't like to wash dishes. I like to go out to eat in my house because we've got five people that all want something different. And it's super easy to be able to go to a restaurant and have that wider variety than me making one meal that four people complain about. And so if that's the situation, I still want to do all of this stuff and I've got a little less disposable income to do it with, would I rather have a little smaller sub at five bucks or a bigger sub at $6? Well, the market answers that, right? Consumers answer that. And there are, and each restaurant, this is the other thing people have to remember is each restaurant gets to decide. Each restaurant gets to decide how they're going to provide that value to the customer. And if Subway says people really like that, I get a foot long because, I mean, it's a foot long, uh, so making it a 10 inch long doesn't really have the same, <laughs> doesn't have the same ring. Right. Uh, they're they're going to do that. And the other thing that people need to remember is that restaurants are really agile, right? So when the $6 foot long didn't work, they figure something else out, right? They find a new way to bring customers in the door. And that's what they're always going to do is see what that response is. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe um, you and I can start, Jonathan, why don't you and I start the movement to stop talking about shrinkflation? I think we'd have to come up with a new phrase, uh, something else. It It doesn't make any sense anyway, because inflation is bigger, shrinking is smaller from an English perspective. It drives me crazy. And I'm not But like, not good for I, the journalists, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't. But it's at the, at the end of the day, it's it's sort of like most of like I, you definitely get some restaurants that will take steps like that. I mean, they definitely yeah. do. But on balance, certainly on a, a wide scale, it's usually connected to their value perception right. in some form, like the subway footlong. Right. And and, rem- and and everybody needs to remember, and I think that this is a fine thing for us to be talking about. So if people that are listening are leaders in the restaurant industry or in the business you know, people are probably asking you about, you know, what's going on and it's good to be able to talk about it and say, Hey, listen, we've got these rising food costs and a really demanding consumer. And we're trying to figure out every restaurant tries to figure out how they're going to handle that. And some of them may choose smaller portions, same quality, same price. Uh, Some may choose, you know, switching out the, the quality of what you're seeing and then keeping the same price so they can manage that inflationary practice. And some of them may just choose to raise prices and they're all doing it because they're thinking about what is it that my customer wants ultimately? What's the value that they're looking for in their experience with me? And so let every restaurant decide. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I think that a lot of times people don't really think about the restaurant industry as a competitive business when it's super competitive. Right. I mean, consumers don't think about it. I mean, I know that operators think about it as a competitive business. They're waking up every day thinking that. Uh, but I don't think that consumers think about the restaurant industry as a competitive business. And it, it is. And, and when you think about, you know, this is another way I think that people can talk to, you know, their friends about what the restaurant industry is like is say, you know, think about the own your own choices that you're making. You know, am I going to go for something where it's a lower price point? 
I know I'm going to get really good food, or am I going to go for something that's a little higher price point, a little bit more relaxed, lingering experience? All of those are choices that people are making in the moment every day before they decide where they're going to go and eat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, and I, I think my 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 belief on on this is that customers will eventually tell the restaurants what they want. There's two a little bit, and and we they see always do. Now, they always do. And 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 I, I I still believe that for the most part, operators really don't want to to shrink. You know, they certainly don't want to cut the quality. And I can tell you, a lot of, you know, restaurants will actually get punished eventually for doing that. Mm -hmm. and, and and operators know this and mm -hmm. and will only take that step when things get really extreme. But again, mm -hmm. in your point earlier, I mean, like restaurants have been taking a pretty big profit hit um, and margins mm -hmm. in the industry mm -hmm. this year have been definitely down because of a wide range of, of cost pressures. And mm -hmm. It's not a nonprofit business, which I tend to sometimes <laughs> think it's not a nonprofit right. business. It's a for-profit right. enterprise that they need to. Support. It's a small margin business, but it's not a nonprofit business. Right, 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 for sure. You know, on that same note, I've had some really interesting conversations with the current chairman of the National Restaurant Association, Lance Trenary, who's the CEO of Golden Corral. And, you know, as a buffet, they've gone through a lot in the last couple of years and it's it's really fun to talk with Lance as it is all of the operators that have gone through so much in, in the last couple of years because they've learned so much and they've gotten so much sharper and smarter and um, it, just really stronger. Uh, but Lance was talking about the work that they're doing on efficiency studies, right? So as they're thinking about how, in, how to manage these inflationary um, pressures, they've done these efficient efficiency standards. And what they figured out was they spend each restaurant at a Golden Corral spends an hour and a half a day cutting carrots. So they put carrots in their carrot cake. So they have homemade carrot cake and everybody who I hope has been to a Golden Corral has had that carrot cake. I have started with the carrot cake only I once my kids, my, my kids weren't with me. So um, I started with the carrot cake instead of the vegetables. Um, so they put carrots in their carrot cake. They put carrots in their stew. They probably have a couple other items where they're putting carrots in and they're, you know, they're, spending an hour and a half a day labor costs cutting those carrots. And so with that, they were able to work with their food supplier and find a really high quality sliced carrot that they felt met the needs that they were looking for to use that pre-sliced carrot in the food that they were preparing at the Golden Corrals. And, and that little bit makes all the difference when the margins are so thin. So there's some really fun stories out there right now about what people are doing to get creative, to keep those prices down. Right. And that's kind of what the industry is all about. You got to figure out how all of this, this works and you find efficiencies mm -hmm. and you find little things that, uh, that can work. And mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, and obviously golden corral, somebody, they got to think about that all the time, given that it's right. a concept. Right, size. Mm -hmm. For sure. But you know that the independent operators are doing all of those same things too. Um, you know, they're thinking about where they're finding efficiency in you know, how they're making their food and uh, maybe they're batching bigger, potentially, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of really interesting things. You yeah. notice it too, even things like the number of hours that they're open, you know, shaving an hour or two off and those times where you're not super busy is enough to keep your costs down so that you're not having to raise your menu prices. Yeah. Let's uh, let's 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 shift and talk a little bit about independence because these is mm -hmm. I mean from my perspective obviously independence that's that's where we saw the bulk of the closures over the you know mm -hmm. 2020 
that is, uh, you know, that's the group that, you know, has not had the ability to uh, sort of respond to some of the cost challenges um, uh, that that have happened certainly uh, this year. Um, okay. How, what's your, I mean, a, a, I mean, how do you balance that need versus somebody like, you know, chain restaurants where, you know, are, are, are frankly, probably in many cases, in most cases are in better position. What's interesting about, I mean, that's always a fascinating conversation. It's one thing that I thought a lot about when I first came into the National Restaurant Association, because there are so many different sizes and shapes of restaurants. And I was getting a lot of the kind of people talking in my ear about how, well, you know, this industry is really broad and it's hard to serve everybody. And, you know, if you're doing a lot for one group or segment, you're not necessarily doing a lot for the others. And I've come out with our team, spending a lot of time thinking about how we're going to lead the organization. And for us, unquestionably, this is a big tent. The National Restaurant Association is a big tent. And it's important that we think about the fact that we have pavilions for everyone in our big tent. And so within those pavilions, um, what are we doing to serve those members and really understand their needs? So one thing that is our real advantage as an association is the tight relationship we have with our members that allows us to understand what's going on with those members. So the conversations that uh, you know the Golden Corral is having is probably a little different than the conversation at John's Oyster Bar uh, and the issues that he's dealing with. But we need to find the spaces and we are doing a lot of work and have always done a lot of work of pulling those groups together. So you're talking with your peers, um, sharing those best practices about how you're managing uh, the food cost increases, managing the labor cost increases, how you're handling trying to get employee retention tax credit, which has been a big thing for so many independent restaurants. There's a lot of money out there for restaurants with that employee retention tax credit. And that is a significant thing that we can do for those members. And we're working hard to make that retroactive for Q4 of 2021 as well, uh, which would be a big boost for people. Not to mention the problem that we have with Treasury, much like the SBA problem, where the IRS has this backlog of paying out ERTC credits. So there's a lot um, to do from that perspective. The other thing I think is important to think about when you're thinking about all the different types of businesses that exist in the restaurant industry is where those common areas are that we are united. And there's a lot of them. There isn't any large operator that I've talked to who hasn't supported the issues that the smaller operators are dealing with. They may not be looking to spend a lot of time doing that work, calling members of Congress, calling their state legislators on those particular issues. But the fact that the National Restaurant Association may be going out and pushing those issues, they completely understand. And so for us as the National Association, I think it's finding that area of unity, looking at the spaces where we can make decisions about how the industry thrives ultimately, trying to take a long-term look on policies and procedures that have good um, long-term implications for the industry so that we continue to be strong. Um, there's, a, there's a lot to do there. Mm-hmm. I guess one of looking back, in the, in the past couple of years. And I think mm-hmm. if I'm, and I know certainly the, the group that I'm connected with the, can, you know, uh, plugged into quite a bit is the investment community. And mm-hmm. one of the things that they actually look at is the restaurant relief fund or revitalization fund, which, which even though it didn't get renewed, the second time, in, yep. yeah, for the second time is still 
if you think about it was this this the first time in anybody's in, in history that that congress devoted money specifically to the restaurant industry i mean it always rescues all these other industries like yeah airlines and cars but never <laughs> right right and and i mean it didn't get it didn't get renewed the second time but it's still sort of this this indication that people really do at the end of the day i mean love restaurants and that's one of my right. themes going forward is that that's kind of this base foundation of you know uh, you know it, it it protects the industry because at the end of the day people yeah. really really do like going out to restaurants it's a fun thing to do and and independent restaurants should be a real beneficiary of that going forward because they actually really love independent restaurants. They love their local right. place. Is that what you do? You talk to people. There's a long way to ask this question. Do you when you're going to Congress, do you just remind them of that? Hey, look, that restaurant that you enjoy going to might not survive because it doesn't get this money. No question, Jonathan. I think that's exactly right. One of the things that I talk about is how restaurants are the heart and soul of their communities. You know, I tell my own stories about when my mother-in-law passed away in 2019 when we were having the service at church. And then, of course, we had coffee in the church basement with the bars. As you're a Minnesotan, you would know we have bars for everybody that's not from the upper Midwest. Ask a friend. They're really good. You should enjoy them. It's not brownies. They can be brownies. This is what people don't understand. Bars can be brownies, but they're not exclusively brownies. And my husband, you know, wanted to do that reception, but he wanted to do something else. And so we went to our local favorite restaurant in Fargo, North Dakota, Blackbird Cafe, Blackbird wood-fired pizza, and said, we'd like to have a reception after the service on that afternoon. And so we invited everybody over to Blackbird and they made their delicious homemade hummus, which I love. They made the uh, sausage apple pizza that my daughters love. And my husband was able to enjoy the time he spent with his family and friends talking about his mom and old times in a place where people were making him feel like he was taken care of. And it was really important to us. And restaurants do that for everybody in little times and places more than people know. And those are the stories that people have to connect with. And so more than that, in telling those stories with elected officials. It's also telling the story about what restaurants do for their communities. Um, you know, we do such amazing work with our members through the Educational Foundation and so many of our programs. All of this was really active when I first started in May. And so I got to see kind of jumping right into the deep end of the pool, these, these great things that people do. Um, we've started a program called Hopes for people that have been involved in the justice system, giving them the skills they need as they're re-entering society. And I had some wonderful stories. And specifically, I love to tell the story about Dustin, who's from Virginia. Uh, he was incarcerated. He didn't have a plan for work. He didn't have a plan for where he was going to live. He needed both of those things in order to be released. And so he worked with a local community-based organization that we in the State Restaurant Association had partnered with and got his SurfSafe certification. He also got two Restaurant Ready certifications and he got a job and he got housing from Shelton's Motel and Restaurant. And so Justin was able to be released, had a place to go, had a job waiting for him. He transitioned into full-time work with Shelton's and then into full-time employee housing at the employee rate. And because he had a job and because he had housing, 
Dustin was able to get visitation with his kids. And if you're thinking about what makes you feel like you got your life back together and going again, it's those things like being able to be with your kids and having a space to go where you're really making a difference. The other thing that's great about it is I'm guessing he's got a lot of friends at Shelton's, which is also what you want. And there's stories like Dustin's all over this industry, right? It's happening day over day, day in and day out. And those are the stories that we need to tell. Because if you're not going to support an industry that does that for people, I, I, you know, who are you, right? These people are the best. <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been great. That's a perfect uh, note to end on. Michelle, thank you very much for joining me this week on the podcast. This was wonderful. Thank you, Jonathan. I've enjoyed our conversation. Look forward to doing it again. And that should do it for this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, which was edited, as always, by Kimmy Kazmarek. Artwork by Nico Hines. You may find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. You may also subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and find them on Anchor and other fancy podcast places. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host, podcast producer, and the editor in chief of Restaurant Business. Thank you for listening. 